Welcome back to another episode of Diversity on Fire. This is your host, Heather. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rohini Anand, who is a strategic DEI advisor, published author, and speaker. Her focus right now is on strategic global diversity, equity, and inclusion through leadership. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to chat with you. Wonderful to be here, Heather. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So before we jump into kind of, you know, the, the business side of things and, and your your work that you've been doing and your experience there, I kind of want to get a little personal. So would you give us an idea of who Rohini is, uh, cultural background, your personal hobbies, interests, family? Sure. Happy to do that. That's the part I love. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, just, just talking about my, my background, my cultural background, um, you know, I think since I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, I think those that are involved in DEI, as I call it, um, you know, it's a very personal calling for them. And so it's very personal for me. And my story is very integral to who I am. So I grew up in Mumbai, India, where everyone pretty much looked like me. I belonged to the majority religion. And surrounded by others like me, I had the privilege of not having to think about my identity. And I moved to the United States as a single young immigrant woman. And that was really my inflection point, both literally and metaphorically in my journey. And my identity pretty much shifted from being a person who saw herself as the center of the world to being a minority, to being perceived as an immigrant, to being perceived as a foreigner and, you know, learning to recognize myself as such. And I honestly was totally unprepared for that. So it was only when I was identified as a minority did I realize some of those privileges that come with being part of a majority. You know, I was part of the majority growing up in India, and I hadn't recognized my privilege in that way. And honestly, Heather, I was unable to until I was perceived as a minority, and I experienced things differently. So, you know, this vocation, this work is very personal for me, understanding what it means to be perceived as a minority, as an outsider, is very much at the heart of DEI work. Um, and my work is about leveling the playing field. So my vocation and my avocation are perfectly aligned. And I will say that, you know, growing up in India, uh, both my parents really, so I'm one of three sisters. So, you know, I have two siblings. And um, my father had gone on a scholarship to the U.S. and he went to California and, you know, he studied film and he tells me this was in the 1940s. And he says that he had never handled a camera in his life, you know. So he went to study film, went on a ship transatlantic and, um, you know, reached California and worked as a cameraman and actually worked with the likes of Cary Grant and others. So he actually worked in Hollywood. And had some great experiences, but some pretty challenging experiences because he travels through the South from California to New York in the 1940s and certainly experienced discrimination. But what's wonderful is, you know, he didn't share some of those stories with me and he allowed me to experience my own journey and, you know, really experience what it means to be an immigrant and to come to the United States. And that was, that was wonderful. My mother was a homemaker. 
But she actually did two wonderful things. She started an international school with some other moms who wanted to really have more of a global education for their kids. And that school is a very sought after school today. Um, and she also started sort of a, a global or international women's organization in India. So, you know, pioneer in many ways. So I was very fortunate to have parents who kind of enabled me to do um, what I went on to do. And I have two, I have a partner, a husband who's terrifically supportive and two grown daughters who are fantastic. And they sort of have taught me, they're my constant teachers um, and they really believe in giving back. So one of them does criminal justice work um, and the other one is a physician and works a lot with immigrant and refugee populations. She's a neurologist. So I'm blessed to have, um, you know, very, very supportive family that really enabled me to grow into and do the work that I do today, which a lot of it was living on a plane, to be honest, Heather. I, you know, I traveled over 70% of my time and I was gone from home. So my spouse basically was there to manage the kids and, and do everything while I was off in, I don't know, various parts of the world. But it was a very, you know, it's been, it's been gratifying my career and my home life. So I'm blessed. That's amazing. And I love to hear, um, and I believe it was in, in your introduction as well that you mentioned it. I love that your father allowed you to have your own experience without tainting it with the stories of his. Mm -hmm. And I think, because I think what we try to do sometimes, myself included, I don't have kids, but I have nieces and nephews, is we really try to protect and, mm -hmm. and adv oh, maybe over advise. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're really imparting our experience on theirs as opposed to just having their own authentic experience. So I mm -hmm. love that he did that. And holy moly, your mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I should have written about her in the book. I was, right. I didn't, wow. yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's amazing. So yeah, yeah definitely, um, based on your story, some, some very solid reasons why it is a part of who you are in the work that you do. I know you, so you had mentioned that, that piece where you came to the U.S. and you kind of realized for the first time, like mm -hmm. you said, that all of your privilege that you didn't even really realize that you had was immediately stripped away. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any specific memories that you could share that might help people connect what that looked like? You mean the, the privilege part or the having privilege stripped away? Um, like the moments that you realized your mm -hmm. privilege. So um, like when you, I think you mentioned when you get off the plane and you mm -hmm. look around and it's all of a sudden not everybody looks like you anymore. Mm -hmm. um, moments like that or moments where somebody might say something about the way that you speak. I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm just wondering if there's anything like that that you can remember. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think on the whole, Heather, it's just, it's being an outsider, right? So that was the experience that stayed with me because growing up in India, as I said, everyone pretty much looked like me, the same skin tones. I was part of the you know majority culture coming to the U S I was not, I was an outsider. And, you know, this sort of, sense of constantly being on the outside, constantly being not necessarily having the same sense of belonging, you know, not, you know, so, so, so struggling with that, 
um, being on the outside looking in most of the times, whether it was in the work environment where I was one of the only, and oftentimes only woman, but certainly many, 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 many times only woman of color. So I think we all have different experiences, right? I mean, yes, there's a common experience that, that is a bond for women in general, but I do think that even there, you know, LGBTQ women have different experiences than women who are not. Uh, women with disabilities have different experiences than able-bodied. You know, women of color have different experiences than white women. So it's having, you know, being the only um, and being on the outside, not having that sense of belonging, sometimes being marginalized, sometimes being second-guessed, talked over. Um, all of those things, I think, you know, cumulatively sort of impacted my my experience and, you know, so to me, it was really, you know, my work was about, you know, leveling the playing field so everyone can succeed. And what it made me do also, because I had been on both sides, right, I'd had I'd been part of the majority. I had not recognized my privilege in that way till I was a minority. It helped me to really understand. I mean, I can never fully understand, but helped me to relate to some of the experiences that people who are not part of the majority have, you know, whether it's based on their sexual orientation or their gender or their race, ethnicity. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yes. Yeah, I think it does. And my my friend and also um, guest co-host sometimes with me here, we've done mm-hmm. traveling together and we've had this conversation a lot about how when we travel, it has been the times that we've grown the most. Because we are put in places that are very different yeah. than than we're used to. And I know um, just a couple pieces that stuck out to me that they're in your, oh, by the way, I should say to everybody, your book, we're kind of talking <laughs> about it like it's top secret. <laughs> it's called uh, Leading Global Diversity. And it's amazing. Um, I definitely recommend, and we'll put it in the show notes, definitely recommend everyone take a look at it. And because it's just so far, I've just, I love the stories and they're really, the way it's written just, I don't know, it just connects with me really well. So, and I love stories are, are an amazing way to, to um, help people understand. It's the whole title, Heather, is Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, a Guide for Systemic Change in Multinational Organizations, but it's Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. So thank you for that plug. Yes. I appreciate yes. it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So in that, in the introduction, you had a couple quotes that I just wanted to point out just because I really like them. And one of them ties to what we're talking about now is the realization that identity is situational and fluid mm-hmm. and how that still informs your work, um, mm-hmm. you know, today. The other one that I really thought was interesting and kind of leads us into this conversation is it's the challenges that brought mm-hmm. you the greatest insight and ultimately the most lasting change, which mm-hmm. I think is powerful because when we start to do this work, it is challenging. It is. Even if we, we I'm saying the we, like the universal we, think that we are so progressive and understanding, everybody has pain points and blind spots. I'd like to talk about some of those challenges because you faced a lot of various challenges from being seen as an American in another country trying to tell somebody what they need to do from, you know, race race and gender. Can you share about some of those challenges? 
Yeah, so I think there's there's several. So thanks for that question. I think um, you know there, there are many many challenges, right, that I encountered. And you're right. I mean, I think the first one that you mentioned. So you know, doing this work, it was interesting because when I started doing the global work, and I worked for Sodexo, which is a French company. Um, you know, I would go over, and when I talked to them, they actually perceived me as Indian. Okay, and so we, you know, we'd have these open conversations about business in India, about the politics, about the food, etc. And this speaks also to the point you made about identity being situational and fluid. Um, but the moment that I started talking about diversity, they shut down, and they saw it as me kind of, you know, forcing you know, uh, sort of like American imperialism. This is an American thing. We don't have any issues here. Uh, and I'm forcing it down on them. It was very challenging because, you know, I had to then unpack their belief systems, meet each person where they were and move them along. And that's really what a lot of my work was about. You know, I say in the book that change or transformation happens at the intersection of people and processes. So yes, you can do, you know, impact processes, but impacting people, changing hearts and minds really meets, means meeting them where they are, understanding their ecosystem of beliefs, and then figuring out how to kind of incrementally move them along. So I think that was one in terms of, you know, influencing them, et cetera. The other piece, and, and, you know, there were, there are many examples and stories I share about how um, you know, I was able to kind of nudge leaders along in their own growth. You know, one example, for instance, is where, and, and this again speaks to being, you know, putting oneself in a minority position. So one example is of a, of one of the CEOs who's no more there, French, um, you know, man. Um, and he basically, um, you know, it talked about gender. And then he said to me, he said, you know, our focus is on gender. Why are you talking about race, ethnicity, when it doesn't resonate globally. And he was right, you know, race and ethnicity don't resonate, for instance, in France, because of the laws, because of the, the, the culture there. You know, in France, it's forbidden to gather race or ethnicity data, and race was removed from the Constitution in 2018, which was in response to persecution of Jewish people, and an effort to rebuild after World War II, um, you know, they, the, the French redefine themselves as indivisible. So they don't identify people by community affiliation, but rather by objective criteria like migration and citizenship. So they don't have, you know, um, demographic identity data on race and ethnicity. But I realized in that moment that I needed to expand his worldview. I needed to bring him a, along. I needed to give him some kind of a disruptive experience so that he could see things differently. So I invited him to an African-American um, employee resource group meeting in North America. He was one of the only men in the room, the, sorry, one of the only white men in the room, certainly the only French man in the room. So being a minority was a unique experience for him in that room. And also he listened to the stories of the African-American men who were sharing their lived experiences. Now, both these experiences, being a, a minority, as well as, you know, listening to these stories were very disruptive for him. And he came away from that with a sort of a newfound understanding, a different worldview, if you will. Um, and then I think from there, he certainly made every effort 
to incorporate issues of race and ethnicity were relevant in his conversations and in how he held managers accountable. So you talked about challenges. So I think one big bucket of challenge was how do you change leaders' mindsets and belief systems? How do you give them those experiences that can be disruptive for them so that they can then lead with, you know, authentic purpose and passion? Um, the other is, you know, my own journey, Heather, because this is also about our own, as you said, we all, we're all a work in progress. So my own journey, and, and you referenced it sort of that first, um, and tell me if you want me to stop because I can go on, but let me share this no, one. I love story it. With Keep you. going. Yeah. Okay. So, the, you know, I, the, I opened with a story in the book about, you know, my going back to India to do DEI work. You know, I had grown up in India um, and, and clearly, you know, I, I sort of understood the culture, the language and all of that. So I went back and I was doing work um, in the offices and I was in a room with about 20 mid-level, entry-level women, and we were talking about career advancement. So, you know, I said to them, I said, you know, talking about career advancement, and I started talking about mentoring and leadership development as vehicles to advance women's careers. And I was met with these completely blank stares, and I, you know, tried to connect with them in different ways, but really was not connecting. And so I, I stopped, I paused, and I said to them, I said, you know, how can the company help you, um, you know, in advancing your careers? And in that moment, you know, they responded. And one woman basically said, you know, that we live in multi-generational joint families. And if we stay late and work on projects or, or, or work late, our mother-in-law gets upset and we have to go back and, you know, take care of the house and cook the evening meal, etc. And it just made me realize that I had completely forgotten this multi-generational joint family dynamic. I had completely forgotten the role of the Indian woman as a wife and mother, but also as a daughter-in-law. And I had focused, you know, um, I, I basically had forgotten sort of my own limitations, you know, as a multidimensional being. And I focused on one aspect of shared identity with these women and I'd completely overlooked the others. So, you know, clearly that was a lesson for myself, right? That I shouldn't really export initiatives that have worked in one part of the world to others, that I need to check my presumptions. I can't just go in and think that this is going to work wherever I go. And ultimately, honestly, Heather, it's about, you know, we do this work about transformation, but we have to disrupt our own worldviews in order to bring about transformation in others because you have to use yourself and it's about we're a work in progress. So we have to. So in the book, I actually, you know, when I started off, I thought I was going to write a how to book. But then as I went along, I realized that what was more interesting was sort of the story behind the story. So my own learnings, lessons I had learned and my own growth on this path. And I love that. And that might be why it connects with me so well, because for me, when you're talking about when we're talking about DEI as, as a general, but when you're talking about some of the um, challenges that you faced in changing people's minds, I think the resounding example from what you just shared with the French gentleman coming over to a group in, in the US, but also some other ones that I remember is it's not, it wasn't necessarily them changing their mind for you. It was you bringing them to a situation or curating a situation 
that allowed them to change their own mind. Mm-hmm. And I feel that's important. And I don't know. I'm personally, I, I can be a little stubborn at times. And I've, I have a lot of stubborn family members. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, we, we run into people that are just, again, they think that their work is done or they don't recognize their privilege or they just don't want to. So being able to curate those situations that create that transformational moment. Other than that, that one moment that you're talking about with the French gentleman, uh-huh. were there things that you learned to do consistently that you found helpful to kind of get people to think things in a different way? Yeah, I think the one thing that I learned to do consistently was meet people where they were. So rather than pass judgment, meet people where they were, understand what their ecosystem of beliefs around DEI is, because it is very, very personal. Um, so I think that was my starting point. And then from there, you know, figure out what is going to make them shift or change, what experience is going to make them move so that they can internalize the benefit of DEI to themselves and to the organization so that they could internalize the benefit of DEI to themselves and to the organization. So, and you know, it often takes this to be authentic, for them to be authentic. It takes a lot of work in terms of introspection for them. So meeting them where they were, sometimes it's, you know, data, sometimes it's facts, right? But more often than not, the data and facts may be a starting point. It's usually getting something that tugs at the heart, giving them an experience that really does tug at the heart because ultimately it's, you know, it's, it's those emotions that make people change, not necessarily because people don't remember data and facts, but they remember how they felt in a particular situation, the stories and, and the emotions. So seeing what those, so I mean, I can share another example. So the starting point was always the same, but then I had to figure out what is it that would make this person move. So there was one particular CEO in Europe. And he was my nemesis. You know, I had shared with him the data. I had shared with him the business case, you know, the Sodexo data, all of this. And he was just, yeah, whatever. I'm, you know, not interested. Um, I did realize that this particular CEO wanted to really wanted to network with other CEOs, like-minded CEOs. Um, it was interesting, just as an aside here, you know, oftentimes when you talk about belonging, we talk about belonging as in employees belonging to a workplace, work culture that's inclusive, that fosters a sense of belonging. But there's this other belonging also, which is a need for companies to belong to a cohort of other elite companies and and almost sort of mimic them, right? So if it's a cohort of companies that are committed to DEI or CEOs that are committed to DEI, then the other CEOs want to kind of, you know, keep up with them. So what happened here was I, you know, so I knew he wanted to network with other CEOs and I figured, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity. Let me put him into a cross company mentoring program. So he got involved in this program and he mentored a woman from a different company. Now they had built a wonderful trusting relationship and this woman got laid off. And when she got laid off, she shared with him stories about being marginalized, about being discriminated against, about, you know, being the only woman in the C-suite and what that felt like. And he listened in a way he never would have. You know, if this had, he came to me afterwards and he said, you know, 
if this had happened to me and you told me there's a woman in my organization who was laid off, I would have said, well, those are the breaks of the game. People get laid off. It's part of business. But he listened differently to this particular woman who shared her story. And so he came to me and he said, I cannot believe that women have these experiences in the workplace. It's unacceptable. I want every one of my 12 direct reports to mentor a woman from a different part of our company. So they mentored slash sponsored these women and 12 women. And of the 12, nine went on to get executive roles, CEO roles, country heads, which was amazing. But it was because he had had this sort of disruptive experience. I mean, I'll say one thing, though, about that. Oftentimes, it's storytelling that shifts people's mindsets. But we have to be careful about how we ask people to share their lived experiences, because lived experiences can be very painful for some. And having them, you know, come out and share these experiences again and again can take a toll. So we've got to be able to, you know, be use discretion in how and when we ask people to share and also maximize the storytelling. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that that was, you know, another example of sort of shifting, but, you know, starting with a leader's ecosystem of beliefs, meeting them where they are without judgment, and then nudging them along using different techniques. And I, in the book, as you know, Heather, I have lots of what I call head and heart techniques for moving people along. So I'm curious with you, because you, you work with this company 20 years? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Did you ever experience um, what I think people would call compassion fatigue? Because you as your own person could potentially be going through Mm -hmm. your own experiences of marginalization or discrimination. um, And then you're also tasked with this monumental feat of kind of bringing everyone else to the table, even when they're pushing against you. Did you ever experience that? And if so, do you remember kind of how you got yourself out of it? Yeah. So I think, you know, doing this work takes an inordinate amount of resilience. It takes tenacity. In fact, one of the CEOs that I reported into, he actually called me, he says, you're Teflon. Because I would keep going at it, you know, one way or the other, I keep going at it. And I think what I learned to do, Heather, was to kind of not take it personally you know, I learned to say, because, you know, I was, I was beat up upon a lot, you know, I would present and people would kind of tear apart what I had said, and, you know, say, this is nonsense, all of that. But I learned that it was really, it wasn't my problem, that, you know, there were issues that were, you know, not my issues. Um, So I learned to not take it personally. And that gave me some strength. I also learned that I couldn't change everyone. That once I had critical mass, you know, others would come along. So I had learned that that was, you know, that, that was a good technique. Not everybody can be changed. I mean, I have to be realistic about that. I am also a workaholic. So for me, you know, work is what gives me energy. And what I will say is what sort of, you know, gave me where I got, where I got recharged was through my family. Um, you know, and I think that's what grounded me. I think that's what grounded me. That's what recharged my energy because yeah, it is exhausting, but I think I learned, you know, I figured out some coping mechanisms that allowed me to continue. 
for those 18 years and then beyond. So, but I would say, and not just family, I would say community as well, because this space, the DEI space, has a very, very supportive community. People who share, people who take care of each other. So that community, the DEI community, was also my go-to place to get recharged. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point to emphasize is, is having those mechanisms in place or finding them or creating them for yourself. Um, I definitely would put myself in the category of workaholic as well, but I also love it. So it doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't necessarily always feel like work. Right. I, I'm thinking of when you started this, because this is something that I, I weigh back and forth a lot. Um, in the last couple of years, in the, in the United States specifically, but in the last couple of years, we've had events happen that have really triggered more movement than I think we've seen mm-hmm. in a while. But at the same time, mm-hmm. even while I say this, you were doing this work long before 2020. So mm-hmm. I, I just want to maybe emphasize that and ask you if you've noticed big changes And if so, what the changes were that you've noticed from maybe before 2020 to after 2020? Yeah, no, I think that's a good, good question. And I do think that the murder of George Floyd and, you know, the video going viral triggered sort of protests around the world. And it opened up a space that had previously been closed. I think the positives are A, that we have more allies now than we ever have had. So people who were on the sidelines are now woke. So we have far more allies who are outraged, which is great. We also have, you know, organizations that are making commitments. So, you know, we have organizations, I think in the U.S., over $200 billion have been committed to racial justice causes, you know, it's a flurry of appointments of chief diversity officers, Um, So, you know, I think there's action being taken, but sometimes that's the easiest thing to do, right, to give money. It has to be a lot more than that. I think it's a good start. But I think, you know, how do you move from these performative actions to sustainable progress? I think that's the critical thing. So I think that's the difference. The difference is there's there's a moment now, there's an opening, there's a space to really make progress. There are more allies today than there ever have been. And I think, you know, CEOs and senior leaders are all open to kind of figuring out how to make this work. And they are, you know, taking some action. However, having said that, I would say that, you know, there needs to be much more done in order to go from this sort of performative action, as I say, to sustainable progress. You know, at the individual level, I think we've got to really look at sort of intersectional identities and different ways of examining and looking at identity through an intersectional lens. You know, we don't talk about socioeconomic class in the U.S., which we need to. We don't necessarily talk about race in many parts of Europe, which we need to. You know, I think at the organizational level, CEOs are beginning, but I think they need to do a lot more to sort of audaciously eliminate some of those sort of harmful practices that have given them an advantage. And I think sometimes that's hard to do because they, you know, they don't realize it. You know, it's like privilege, right? When you have it and you're part of the majority, you don't realize it till you don't have it. 
Um, so they don't acknowledge what got them to the positions, but I think they've got to be, act a lot more audaciously. And I think organizations are beginning to do this third piece, which is taking more daring and unequivocal stands on injustice in the communities. Where organizations were quiet, they're now standing up and saying, we've got to take a stand. Employees are asking for it. Customers and consumers are asking for it. So I think there's more of an impetus to do something in that space. So I think all this is different from, you know, before 2020 and before um, the murder of George Floyd and other black men and women went viral throughout the world. I think this that, that's that's different. And I think we've really got to be more bold and lean into this moment to make change happen. And that's that is to me, that's the most important thing in this moment is to make sure we've got everyone's attention, right? Sustain that attention and continue to take action. It's, mm -hmm. I don't know if this is the right phrase to say or the way, way to say it, but my concern is this becomes another blip on the timeline of history where everybody was focused on it in, in as you say, sometimes a semi-performative way. And then in a couple of years, it dies down and we're not paying attention anymore. So um, it's mm -hmm. it seems like it's different. It feels like it's continuing. And so I'm hopeful about that. I am curious, too, and this might just be entirely your, your own opinion. Um, but when I when reading the book, it, it's so fascinating. You have such a wealth of knowledge just being in these different places um, and how they communicate and how, as you mentioned, some places they can't even use certain words to identify races. Um, mm -hmm. In your opinion, being in those places that have decided not to account for, statistically anyways, mm -hmm. different races, mm -hmm. being in those places, do you still feel like it's potentially an issue? It's just not being recorded? Yeah, for sure. hundred okay. percent. Definitely. Yeah, it is an issue. It's just that, um, you know, they look at it differently. They don't identify people by race or ethnicity. But that is, I mean, when you look at workplaces, you see that there are a lot of black people, let's say in France or in Germany, in entry level positions, but you don't see them in management positions or in executive positions. And, and so, you know, they, the Europeans, or in this case, the French will say, that, you know, we don't identify people by their community affiliation um, because we define ourselves as indivisible. So either you're French or you're not. If you're French, you have, you know, there's a meritocracy. But that's, in reality, that's very far from the truth. Yeah. Same thing in Brazil. You know, Brazil prides itself as a racial democracy. Um, but when you see the the pardo, the, uh, the uh, mixed race and black population, preto and pardo populations, are over 50% in, in Brazil. They're the majority, but they're the poorest. They're the least educated. They're not in, in positions of decision-making. Um, you know, so you can say that we, we don't have issues of racism, but the reality is very, very different. They're also victims of police brutality. So there's historical reasons why, you know, countries have taken these different approaches. As I mentioned in France, for instance, it was a reaction to the Holocaust, right? It was, you know, don't want to identify people by their community affiliation like the Jewish community because of the discrimination against them. 
in in Brazil, it was something different. You know, they had a very deliberate blancamento policy, whitening the population. Uh, you know, while in the U.S. you have a one-drop rule, right? You have one drop of black blood, you're African-American. It was quite the reverse. They have like over 130 different shades um, of black and brown in Brazil. And the idea was to over-report how many white people there were. So it's, it's you know... <laughs> It's interesting. It's it it really is fascinating how it, how ev- everyone operates so differently, but when it's broken down to its you know corest element, it it really ends up being very similar. Yeah, and that's why I say Heather, the experiences around race and u- racism are both universal but very very local. Yeah. Right. So experiences, you know, like police brutality against black people, for instance, very sort of some common denominators, but also very local based on the history, the culture, the laws of every single country. It's amazing. I could keep asking you questions on this all day long because I just love how many places you've been. But I want to open it up and let you share with us what you're doing now because you have your own business. You're on um, the boards of several companies as an advisor. Um, so I'm curious what you would like to share with us. Wonderful. Thanks, Heather. So yeah, you're right. I mean, I stepped down, I rewired from my role at Sodexo in 20, 20 January and COVID hit. So um, I decided to write my lived experiences in my book. That was a, a novel experience for me. I had never written a book. It was my first and uh, was a big learning experience for me. So today um, I'm doing a lot with the book in terms of blogs and writing and podcasts like this one. And thank you for inviting me to do this. Um, also doing a lot of speaking about the book, you know, in different venues. Uh, I am on several boards. Um some mostly nonprofit, some for-profit diversity and inclusion advisory board. So I'm on the DI board for charter communications um, and uh, also for Sanofi, which is a, a French pharma company. And then I'm on the boards of Gold Foundation, which places people with disabilities. One of the Gates Foundation initiatives called Women Lift Health that advances women in healthcare. Um, Tent Partnership, which is funded by the CEO of Chobani Yogurt, um, which addresses um, refugee empowerment globally. Um, One of Aspen Institute's initiatives called Ascend, Family Prosperity. Um, And then the National uh, NACD, their DEI Governance Advisory Board. So I'm on a lot of these, which I love. And I'm also... What I've chosen to do is, you know, I've done coaching for others in the DEI field forever. So what I have chosen to do is to basically um, coach chief diversity officers. So it's sort of behind the scenes coaching to position them for success. And so that's sort of the three buckets of my work, the speaking around the book and writing around the book, the, the boards, uh, for-profit, non-profit, and then the the coaching, the strategic coaching for chief diversity officers. And I'm loving every moment of it. So (laughs) amazing. Well, congratulations on the book. And again, I'm going to put that in the show notes. I would highly encourage everybody to check it out um, because I have loved, I am not quite finished yet, but I'm almost done and I've loved all of it. Um, All right. Are you ready for the final three questions? 
Sure. Okay. First one is what is one thing, one small thing that everyone listening can do today to be more inclusive? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing I would say is to work on yourself. Examine your own issues, your own biases, because, you know, as I said, we're all a work in progress. And in order to bring about transformation in others, you really have to um, work on yourself and use yourself as an instrument of change. So examine your own self-awareness, I think, would be would be one. Um, and, you know, practice inclusive behaviors. So lift others up, see who you can sort of create a space for that you can support and lift up and coach, advise to make them successful. Expose yourself to experiences that may be not part of your day-to-day life, but most importantly, work on your own self-awareness. And what are five words that you would use to describe yourself? Uh, Resilient, determined, strategic. Um, What else would I say? Resilient, determined, strategic, five words, fun loving, (laughs) and um, relationship oriented. Excellent. Excellent. And where should we send people? Where should people go to connect with you, learn more and, and keep up to date on what's going on next? Awesome, Heather. So go on my website, www.rohiniyanand.com. Dot com And, um, you know, my book is up there. Please subscribe to my newsletter. You will get, you know, sort of um, monthly newsletters. There's a lot of information I put on LinkedIn. I also actually host, Heather, every other month, I host a learn from my experience session where people can sign up and come with their questions. And we typically have about 70 to 80 people attending, although more actually register. Um, it's almost like a free consultation. They can ask, you know, whatever DI questions they have and, you know, I answer it for them. So, yeah, they can they can sign find out all this information on my website. So www.rohinianand.com. Okay, excellent. I love that workshop. It is so valuable. I'm actually going through one right now that's being presented by Small Business uh, Association mm-hmm. where I live. And it's amazing how much you can get out of those things. So everybody, if you just heard that, click on it, join, get the newsletter. I'm so excited. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate your book and the work you're doing. Thanks, Heather. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening in today. I hope today's conversation inspired you to think more deeply and gave you some ideas on how to move forward. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Diversity on Fire. And please share the show with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations. Change or transformation happens at the intersection of people and processes. Thank you.